Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Stroke Busters, a podcast presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston in Houston, Texas. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest news and discussion in stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm Amy Quinn, Communications Director for the Stroke Institute. Today's guest is Dr. Patrick Key, a non-invasive board-certified clinical cardiologist with clinical interests in clinical lipidology, preventative cardiology, and non-invasive cardiovascular imaging. His PhD research focuses on the metabolism of high-density lipoproteins, aka good cholesterol. He has an active research program in molecular imaging and targeted drug delivery using novel nanoparticles and intravascular devices. He is a member of the National Lipid Association and is up to date with contemporary management of various lipid disorders. He also runs a level two lipid clinic and preventative cardiology clinic at the UT Professional Building. Dr. Key joined us for stroke grand rounds and stuck around to record this episode with one of our vascular neurology fellows to answer some more questions so that we can share more of his insights and research. Let's dive right in. Dr. Key, um, thank you again for joining us today. Um, I'm Jerome, one of the stroke fellows, and I wanted to just dive in a little bit about uh, the talk that you just gave us, um, as well ask some questions about, uh, you know, some of your ongoing research um, outside of uh, the clinical, you know, talk that we were just having. Um, But just to start, you know, the audience for our podcast includes um, not just you know, stroke neurologists, also trainees in neurology, and as well um, patients, um, you know, stroke patients and their families. So, um, just to start, um, I wanted to know a little bit about um, the lipid clinic and this level two lipid clinic um, that we have here at McGovern. And uh, maybe from a stroke neurologist perspective, when is a good indication um, to refer patients over to this clinic? Yeah, so we are certainly operating at a higher level uh, in terms of the uh, lipid management. So usually the type of patients that will come to us are um, if there's any uncertainty about managing the lipids in patients with um, like a strong family history of uh, premature coronary artery disease and not knowing whether to start uh, lipid therapy or it could be a secondary prevention type patient who have already had a coronary or cerebrovascular event and uh, and not sure you know how to lower their risk and getting the appropriate uh, lipid lowering uh, treatment another type of patients that usually come to us are patients you know with statin intolerance is a relatively common uh, presentation and like the patient has tried already all kinds of lipid lowering therapy, but they keep getting side effects. Or uh, another type of patients that I get are patients with um, a uh, uh, very complicated multisystemic disease. So, so some of these are, could be like patients with you know inflammatory conditions such as uh, systemic lupus. Uh, or patients with uh, HIV on the multiple type of medications that can interact with other type of medications. Uh, patients uh, who are transplant patients who also have uh, drug interactions, and not to mention that they have accelerated atherosclerosis from a transplant itself. 
and um, and also uh, patients uh, with um, uh, uh, like um, other end stage uh, renal disease. Um, and uh, so some of these uh, patients uh, uh, may come to me. Um, and then there are also these patients with um, like that, they, they have a history of, of uh, hypercholesterolemia, but they are pregnant or they are, uh, they, they need to, uh, to have uh, breastfeeding. So they will want to know if it is safe for them to be on a lipid lowering therapy, yet they personally don't, don't want to have any progression of the disease while uh, they are not able to tolerate uh, some sort of LDL cholesterol lowering. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, definitely lots of reason um, to utilize the special, uh, you know, clinic that we have here. Um, I also wanted to ask maybe from a patient's perspective, um, you know, the, the benefits of lipid lowering are very clear in our medical literature, um, but maybe real quick, from your perspective, how would you normally um, tell a patient, you know, the reason to be on lipid lowering agents, whether it's statin or non-statin therapies, um, their overall benefits, you know, for their health? Mm, yeah, so it depends on your, your target audience. It usually takes more effort, you know, for in a primary prevention setting. You know, I haven't had, my, had any disease at this point. You know, why docs? You know, why do I need to be on a statin? So, so those are the ones, you know, we hard, harder to convince, and uh, you need to present them with evidence of uh, uh, or so-called risk enhancer. So the the 2018 guideline has been helpful in that uh, particular fashion, and we have uh, highlighted uh, some of the. Uh, risk enhancing factor that uh, that uh, that can guide us uh, as to whether to start these patients on statin therapy. Yeah, and uh, if there's any doubt, calcium score has been useful because uh, if there's any calcium uh, deposition in the coronaries, the patient can see it, you know, on on the uh, on the images. So it's not something imagining, you know, it's not just like treating the number but you clearly have seen plaque formation in your coronaries. Or in other cases, you know, it could be your carotid ultrasound and the uh, incidental finding, you know, in your patients or patients with a peripheral artery disease. Uh, or even, you know, a lot of patients have erectile dysfunction. You can tell them, you know, they already have microvascular disease. So it is just a prelude to, uh, you know, further problem down the track. Another type of patients that I find uh, also challenging to uh, convince not to be on a statin, maybe a very young patient with a strong family history of coronary artery disease, and yet they come to you and say, well, really want to be on a statin, you know, while well, I have a family history of, of this, you know, yet the patient is in the 20s and, and the LDL is relatively normal, you know, those ones, you know, you, you also have, you know, um, will be uh, uh, another difficult uh, patient population to to analyze the situation with them. Of course, you know the patients with uh, declared uh, disease states such as uh, stroke or coronary events. You have to tell them that um, they're really not out of the woods yet after the stent is put in for their acute event, or you know if they have regained uh, uh, their functionality after TIA. It doesn't mean they. They, they can uh, relax at that point. It's, it's only that they've been lucky to be alive after that acute event, and now is really the time to be aggressive. Yeah, 
I keep telling my fellows, you know, that you know, it is very, very exciting to, to go into a cath, take a patient to a cath lab and do all these exciting things. But really what is going to save your patient is systemic therapy and treating the patient as a whole, not only to prevent them from getting another coronary event, but also prevent them from getting a stroke, preventing them from getting a, a peripheral artery uh, uh, events in the future. Yeah, great points. Um, awesome. And then kind of going uh, in addition to that, um, whenever you're talking to patients about maybe dietary changes that they can do um, for lipid lowering and as well to reduce risk for cardiovascular events, um, what types of diets or maybe even simple food changes do you usually recommend? Yeah. So one very useful resource for all of you we actually be going to the National Lipid Association, the lipid.org. They have some tear sheets that you can use. Uh, they, they commissioned uh, patient tear sheets that cater for patients with uh, high cholesterol or high triglycerides and also with um, uh, uh, obesity and, um, and also patients uh, with uh, uncertainty about the so-called Mediterranean diet or uh, a DASH diet. So that website has a lot of nice tear sheets with sample menu that uh, patients uh, could uh, look at as well. But of course, you know, it, it comes down to the patient uh, themselves, because if a patient's uh, presenting issue is a high triglyceride, for example, especially for the ones, you know, with a level of lot more than 500 or even more than 1,000, the priorities is obviously to lower the triglycerides before the LDL. Yet for other patients with uh, triglycerides uh, at a moderately high level, but also has high LDL and other cardiovascular risk factors, the priority there will be to lower the LDL. And uh, so, so the diets could also change because like, for example, the patient with very high triglycerides, I would use the tear sheet for a chylomicron cleansing diet for them and reducing the, uh, the fat intake to less than 10% of the caloric intake. But yet, if it is a patient with uh, mainly high cholesterol and uh, coronary disease, those ones should be on a low-fat uh, and low-carb diet. And a patient with diabetes, obviously, you know, we also need to um, uh, be on, on a low-fat, low-carb. And if obese, we need to also look into you know, um, you know, weight reduction. So you have to cater, really, you know, individualize your, your advice to the patient you are seeing. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, these are great points. Um, so in addition, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, you know, the uh, preclinical research that you do as well. Um, some really exciting projects over the past few years that um, you've been leading, uh, you know, there have been things um, related to nanoparticles or devices, intravascular devices, and um, you know, uh, liposome um, delivery of drugs, things like that. So I wanted to dig in a little bit more. And um, our stroke audience doesn't typically get to hear about some of these things that are sort of in development. So um, first, a little bit about the project related to um, nanoparticles. It sounds like to better visualize um, myocardial injury. Um, how, how does that work? And I guess, what were you able to find um, using these uh, gold nanoparticles? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, we have been having an interest in these uh, molecular traces to unravel some of the biology in the myocardium and also in the vessel wall. So in the set, in the uh, particular example that you are alluding to, uh, we are looking at uh, myocardial fibrosis um, and, uh, or in, in another word, a scar that's left behind after a heart attack. And because um, we know that uh, the scar burden or the ischemic, uh, the, the scar burden uh, can be an indication of the amount of uh, tissue damage you have sustained uh, from your uh, acute event and also could be a uh, a substrate for cardiac arrhythmia in the future. So we want to see if we could quantify that, you know, using a gold nanoparticles. And uh, fortuitously, we have uh, encountered a, uh, a ligand that's expressed on the surface of uh, some bacteria, and bacteria likes to stick to things uh, with these uh, protein. And uh, in particular, in this case, it sticks to collagen, which is a major component of the myocardial scar. So we're able to use that uh, particular uh, ligand and, um, and, and connect that uh, on the surface of the uh, gold nanoparticles and see if the, the gold nanoparticles can uh, get concentrated and uh, home into this scar. And uh, and gold nanoparticle is a very good CT attenuating material, or like our metal. So we will be able to use that to quantitate the uh, amount of scar. And uh, gold also has a different energy level when compared with compared with calcium, which is the most abundant uh, X-ray attenuating substance in your body, no matter its calcification or the bony structure. So if you can use dual energy CT, you can differentiate between calcium uh, versus the, uh, the molecular tracer that you, are, you have injected. But furthermore, uh, the gold nanoparticle is also a blood pool agent, very much like the contrast agent. So when you inject that, you, know, you can also use that as a way of uh, evaluating the coronary circulation in the first pass. And then in the later phase imaging, you look at the scar. So you have both the anatomical uh, information of the coronary uh, circulation and also the burden of the, uh, the disease and, uh, and the scar uh, formation inside the myocardium. So that was the initial goal uh, of that uh, project. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, are there, uh, I guess, imaging modalities or, you know, um, I guess in the pipeline, any imaging process now that's getting developed um, to use these gold nanoparticles um, in this way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the uh, Achilles tendon uh, to these kind of treatment is uh, it is a, an exogenous uh, particle and you need uh, to prove their safety. Uh, and like a lot of the particulate material that inject into the body, Gold nanoparticles also get picked up by the reticular endothelial system, such as the liver and the spleen. And uh, in our pharmacokinetic studies, we found that uh, those particles, they stay in your liver and the spleen for a long, long time. <laughs> so we really do not know the long-term consequence of uh, you know, these uh, particles and uh, what they're going to do to your liver and spleen and other end organs when they deposit there. 
still, you know, we, we know that we have injected goals in, in patients, right, in the past, you know, for um, treatment of uh, rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory conditions. We think they're relatively inert and relatively safe. Yet, um, when particles get into the nano dimension, <laughs> you know, they may not behave like uh, bulk gold, you know, there's, uh, it's, uh, it may behave differently, it may actually behave like a catalyst of some kind of reaction that we do not particularly understand. And one other issues with a lot of these contrast agents is that um, companies out there, they have an interest in uh, developing an, a contrast agent that is multi-purpose. If you have a too narrow uh, focus on just one particular application, um, the, the market is a bit small, and uh, usually there, you will not get much traction and interest uh, from the industry. So it's uh, kind of difficult. You know, you, you can have really fantastic results uh, in, the, in the lab or in the, uh, in the CT scanner, but to have it being realized and being uh, commercially deployed is uh, a whole new uh, set of uh, issues. Yeah, it'll be a long process. I think um, within stroke, uh, maybe there are some researchers out there that can find this very interesting as well, because uh, in stroke, we are, you know, for brain imaging, we want to also be able to quantify where um, infarcted or scar tissue is versus maybe what's still viable tissue, um, even for acute decision making. Um, we use perfusion imaging in that way, but um, maybe there is an application for gold nanoparticles and some sort of way of uh, identifying differences in tissue for the brain as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you see most of the contrast that we use these days, uh, what, you know, in a science world, we could call them dumb, dumb traces because they're not specific for anything. You know, like FDG, uh, you know, the iodinated contrast agent in the ultrasound world will be the uh, the uh, the micro bubbles. <laughs> you know, they're they're non-targeting, they're very very rudimentary, but yet you know they have found themselves with a lot of applications. So those are the ones that are being commonly used right now. Gotcha. That's a great perspective um, to learn about. Well, I wanted to um, pivot a little bit to a different project uh, that you all have been working on as well. Um, and really interesting paper that um, looks like came up from your group just last year about um, echogenic liposomes and um, I guess using them to deliver drugs directly to target lesions, atherosclerotic lesions. Um, and then it sounds like even making them active by applying ultrasound to them. So uh, walk us through this process. And then I wanted to start, you know, thinking about how we could also apply this to stroke, um, you know, endovascular uh, procedures and maybe new approaches to treating intracranial um, atherosclerotic disease. Yeah, so, so that's interesting because uh, one of the applications of these uh, Micro bubbles uh, was actually for the uh, dissolution of any thrombus in the uh, uh, in the cerebral circulation with the uh, um, catheter-based uh, therapy. So 
people have already tried, you know, to inject uh, these uh, micro bubbles and then uh, uh, get an ultrasound uh, 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 catheter to activate these micro bubbles. So we know that the ultrasound itself can. It's almost like a bit of a, uh, a pneumatic drill, right? You know, you can use that to uh, to loosen up the uh, the newly formed thrombus and uh, and get them to dissolve um, more effectively. But then uh, they also feel that if these bubbles, you know, they are able to get entrapped in this uh, uh, thrombotic network, and the application of the ultrasound may actually serve almost like a little explosives <laughs> inside the the clot, and then to further just pop these uh, thrombi and get them to be dislodged even more effectively. And you can even combine that with thrombolytics. And uh, but. Um, it has been uh, still uh, a, a, a challenge in terms of safety and and not to mention that uh, the procedure can be quite specialized and quite cumbersome in certain ways. So I don't think it's been fully adopted at this point. But on the other hand, uh, we also know that uh, ultrasound interacts with these micro bubbles as if you convert these micro bubbles into what we call micro syringes, almost like micro syringes. So what you, you do that uh, it's the ultrasound if you if you you know uh, oscillate them, you know you disturb them, but not popping them. You know you oscillate them and uh, get them to to get smaller and bigger, smaller and bigger. You can squeeze some of the contents out. And uh, so it's almost like a bit of a micro injector that uh, if you can get these uh, micro bubbles to get close to your target and then to stir them up a little bit without your sound, so you can be more focused and more targeted in your uh, drug delivery. So that's the idea behind you know, uh, some of the work that we are doing now and is to see how we can avoid uh, generalized side effects, but at the, at the meantime, be able to deliver a very effective payload you know, to the area that we want to treat. And um, in our case, it could be an atheroma that we want to treat, or it could be a stent that we put in you know, and we want to deliver uh, medications to prevent uh, any instant restenosis. Um, so that is uh, you know, uh, another piece of work that uh, uh, Dr. McPherson and I have been do uh, working on uh, in the last couple of years. And we may be having a, a phase one tri a trial in humans uh, in the next uh, year or two. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think um, taking us into the future, hopefully we can take some of these technologies um, quickly over to the stroke side because sometimes we lag behind cardiology and, and taking over some of these um, you know, new ideas and new technologies. It would be great to try this early, maybe for whether it's carotid plaques or intracranial um, large vessel disease. Um, there are issues, I think, that uh, for our patients um, when they're acutely having a stroke and then, um, you know, our endovascular team removes the thrombus mechanically, um, but then there remains a hot plaque or, you know, very um, thrombogenic lesion um, that becomes very difficult to clinically manage. So um, it might be really useful tool to be able to apply um, targeted drugs or, um, you know, if they do deploy a stent 
immediately during the procedure to be able to, um, you know, keep that open and not stenosed um, or occluded just using, um, you know, these targeted medications um, and ultrasound mediated uh, delivery there. Um, really interesting ways of, of applying this. Have, have you, I guess, considered some of these um, cerebrovascular applications? I think uh, another uh, person in my group um, has uh, been working with uh, Sean Savitz in developing um, a neuroprotective agent for delivery using our technology. So instead of a, a drug, uh, we have been trying some bioactive gases that can be entrapped inside the microbubbles. And uh, using the same technology, it could be intravascular or external ultrasound to activate these uh, microbubbles near the brain or near the carotid artery. So um, I think uh, uh, it is an ongoing research uh, that has shown in animal studies uh, been uh, reducing you know, the extent of stroke um, uh, after uh, some animal models. So that is uh, uh, something that is already ongoing. Um, great to hear. Uh, and just so that we don't go uh, for too long, I just wanted to ask last um, wrap-up questions just related to um, career development, you know, for our trainees that may be listening as well. So, um, you know, you've had a successful career in academics, so I wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, how you got started or maybe what advice you have for those uh, early career fellows, um, junior faculty that are you know, trying to kick things off? Mm -hmm. I think you have to have a curious mind and um, your motivation has to be how you feel you can help your patients. Yeah. So like in my career, um, when I was trained uh, as, as a general cardiologist, I do have exposure you know, to interventions. But I thought, mm, why these patients you know, still getting events after their initial intervention? And why these patients are so young and they get their initial myocardial infarction? Is there a way we can predict uh, if these patients will have an event in the future? Or if after they're treated, is there a way I can monitor the treatment efficacy? Because right now, you know, we have very crude uh, tools. And you have heard in the talk that what we have is LDL cholesterol levels. And we, we just wish for the best, you know, if you can get below 70 or below 55, you are, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You have no idea about what is happening in the, uh, in the, in the vascular territories that you want to treat and to prevent another event. So that's why that uh, set off you know, my initial interest in molecular imaging as a way of predicting future events and also to monitor therapeutic efficacy. So, uh, so you have to be, have, have a, an idea about what you want to do and you want to see how you can do it. And uh, so that's how, I got into it in the first place and you have to also you know meet with the right people with the same interests as you and uh, share, uh, share the same uh, passion and uh, um, that's how you get started great um 
Really wonderful advice. Um, and thanks so much for taking the time uh, for the podcast today. Okay. All right. Thank you for your invitation again. Enjoy your crowd. And that's it for this episode of Stroke Busters. As always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you are getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. UT Health Stroke is on social media. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at UT Health Stroke to stay updated on upcoming episodes, share with colleagues, friends, and family. For updates and the latest news on the Stroke Institute, go online to uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Until next time, take care.